Hey, what up guys? Alex Pitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is, I wanted to say Monday, but it's Tuesday. Monday was off. And it's, you know, the first day after the Labor Day weekend. <laughs> if only we could have another day to kind of recover before we get back to work, but then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You just end up continuously having days off and hey, maybe we just never go to work again. But Probably shorter episode today, I'm going to talk about Enrique Tario, who's getting 22 years for the January 6th stuff, sedition charges. But first, I did just want to touch briefly on North Korea, Russia, and China. The union, the trifecta that none of us wanted, none of us need, but it's happening. Do you remember Vivek, or Vfake Ramaswamy, who talked about how we need to appease Putin and give him the east of Ukraine so that Russia doesn't get closer to China. Well, sorry, bro, it's already happening. And along with that, North Korea is also expecting to meet with Putin and is getting closer with Russia and is getting closer with China. And that's not good news. According to The Economist here, Kim Jong-un, in quotes, North Korea's leader, expects to meet with President Vladimir Putin in Russia, and that's according to American officials. The reclusive Mr. Kim will reportedly travel this month, probably by armored train, to the far eastern city of Vladivostok. Last week, the Biden administration expressed concern over a potential arms deal between the two, as Mr. Putin seeks weapons for his war against Ukraine. Of course, the Kremlin declined to confirm the summit. Some people are reacting to this going, oh my God, you know, the war in Ukraine, this is why we need to reevaluate the war in Ukraine because North Korea is going closer to Russia. I don't particularly buy that argument. To be devil's advocate and to just parrot some of the takes other people have had, they would say that during Trump's administration, his fire and fury comments his reaction to Kim Jong-un, his, in quote, love letters to Kim Jong-un, his meeting with Kim Jong-un, it didn't do anything tangibly, but it kept North Korea at bay and it kept the whole region safer. I can kind of understand that because Trump had this madman mentality towards North Korea. He met with Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-un wasn't testing rockets left and right. He wasn't uh, testing ballistic nuclear missiles. You guys get the gist. I can understand that to a certain extent. But at the same time, Kim Jong-un is a small man, a man who wants to be heard, a man that wants power in the region. And let's be honest, I mean, North Korea doesn't have a lot to offer to the rest of the world. So the only way to be heard when you don't have a lot to offer is nuclear development. And he's clearly made a calculation that they're not going to take care of the people. They're not going to fight for liberty and freedom and democracy and individual rights and free speech. So the, the, the regime focuses on military development. And when you're a small country with an awful economy and an oppressed society and malnutrition and a broken economy, you're probably going to focus on making warheads. And so when you're a pariah to the West, I guess you turn to the other pariah of the West who is Vladimir, Vladimir, sorry, I always want to say Vladimir because that's Zelensky's name, but Vladimir Putin, you always want to turn to Vladimir Putin. And so I think people are freaking out and saying this is because of the war in Ukraine. I would argue that 
North Korea has kind of always been in the eyes of Russia for a long time. I mean, even since the Korean War in the 50s, right? And so while I don't agree with those takes, what I will say is that it is not good to know that we could have some sort of a shared nuclear alliance, military defense alliance between North Korea, Russia, and China. Three countries that I don't think are good actors, three countries that are focusing on nuclear proliferation and are working to kind of undermine the West. And there's some interesting reports, a lot of interesting reports actually, that look at how basically arms control between Russia and the United States is collapsing. We have to remember that there was the new START treaty that Trump pulled us out of that was between the United States and America. Basically what happened is we, under the leadership of Trump, decided to pull out of exchanging information and working together to limit our nuclear arsenals. The treaty is finally expiring in 2026, so it hasn't happened yet. But I would argue that Russia is already moving past us. They're already thinking about the post-New Start era. Now, of course, I'm not going to solely point fingers at Trump here because we have to remember that Russia is very fine with this in a lot of ways as well. And unfortunately, though, pulling out of this New Start treaty, it's one of the last ones in the post-Cold War and Cold War era that kind of at least allowed us to share information between ourselves and the former Soviet Union. And I think that's important to know where the nukes are, who has them, and what's going on with them, and whether we're working to limit them or grow them. And it seems like Russia, along with China and North Korea, has different ideas at hand. And China, I don't think, has ever really cared about curbing their arsenal. But some would argue when you do have North Korea, Russia, and China all coming together and collaborating, down the road you could see another Cuban-style missile crisis of some form because the thought experiment that plays out in my head is what if China or Russia wants to evade accountability and start helping North Korea develop weapons and then you have... North Korea basically serving the role of Cuba in the 60s where there are arsenals in North Korea outside of Russian and Chinese territory, but close enough to American allies such as Japan and South Korea that, yeah, people get worried. And in the past, you know, America and Russia have accepted limits on our arsenals, 5,000, 6,000 warheads. Obviously, that's more than enough to destroy the world many times, right? Smaller threats as well. China's tried to be minimally deterrent as well. But there's a lot of worries that after 2026, when the New START Treaty ends, there could be a desire to develop more weapons. And according to the Pentagon, China could have at least 1,500 warheads by 2035, and again, you have to remember that Russia and China have their friendship in quotes with no limits, and that could act as a military alliance in a, in a case of crisis. What always worries me is that China or Russia maybe try to match America's arsenal. India then decides to build up in response to China. And then what does Pakistan do in reaction to India? Like the thought experiment is easy. I think The Economist has a really good point on this. The Economist says here in quotes, Stability requires a mix of threat and reassurance. The big powers need to discuss all the aspects of their, mil of their nuclear enterprise, not at least military and missile defenses and tactical weapons. They must also think of space and cyberspace, where the first shot of the next war may be fired. 
A call by America, Britain, and France to limit the role of artificial intelligence by assuming there is a man in the loop using nukes makes sense. And I think that touches on another point here is that if we keep proliferating nukes, moving forward in the direction of not talking to our adversaries and developing more nukes, along with the development of artificial intelligence, you need to make sure that there are still men in the room isolated from artificial intelligence so we don't have to worry about a myriad of factors making this just a toxic soup of problems going down the road. And I think what also plays out in my head is that if you have Russia, China, and North Korea all focusing on evading the West and developing more weapons to kind of keep up with the United States... I mean, first and foremost, I think the United States should lead by example, not by doubling down or isolating ourselves, but by maybe moving towards non-proliferation. That would be my first thought. But also you have to remember that this could create a real security dilemma in the South Pacific, as well as the surrounding countries to China, and as well as Japan and up into Russia. And I don't like that scenario at all. Anyways, guys, I don't know about you, but Enrique Tario is getting 22. What I mean here is that Enrique Tario, the group's former chairman, and when I say the group, the Proud Boys former chairman, he was sentenced Tuesday, so I guess now, depending when you're listening, tomorrow, he was sentenced to 22 years in prison, and this is on charges of seditious conspiracy. Something I'll get to later, though, is that Tario was not actually present physically at the riot. He was kicked out of Washington the day before but then was convicted in May. And we should remember that this is the longest January 6th related sentence as of now. But it also does follow a pretty long series of long sentences that have happened over the last week or so for other Proud Boy members. You have 17 years for Joseph Biggs. He was the guy who said, fuck around and find out, which by the way, I guess he did fuck around and he did find out because he's spending 17 years now in prison. But he was actually at the National Mall on January 6th in D.C. You also have 18 years sedition charges for Ethan Nordian, 15 for Zachary Real, And then there's also 10 years for Dominic Pizzola. He was actually acquitted, sorry, acquitted of sedition, but was actually convicted of six other felonies as well. So he's actually kind of playing like sentence bingo. How many atrocious charges can you get away with? And then I guess fuck around and find out and not get away with them. We also have to remember that back in March, or not back in March, sorry, back in May, Stuart Rhodes, Oath Keeper dude, head of the Oath Keepers, Yale educated, by the way, but the guy who I think truly did want a civil war working with Roger Stone and other dangerous sycophants, he was also sentenced to 18 years for sedition. And it was because of his capacity and the conspiracies involving the insurrection. Now, I want to get into the nitty-gritty of sedition for a moment because sedition, I guess you could say, is somewhat different than, say, conspiracy charges. They are obviously related, but David Graham, this is actually a pretty old article, he writes in The Atlantic in quotes that the charge involves conspiring to overthrow put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property in the United States. Basically, it's 
less the theories behind it, but it's more the physical plan to do something to obstruct law and order and to make the American system not work. And it does involve conspiracy in a sense, because of course you're planning to do this one way or another. I should note though that sedition is also difficult to prove, which to me says that there must have been a decent amount of evidence if they were actually able to do this. Carlton Larson, um, who is a Martin Luther King professor of law at UC Davis School of Law, does think that the sedition charges are correct. He acknowledges that, of course, these forms of charges or accusations, I guess, could be abused in the future, but they should not stop prosecutors from using these charges when they are fitting. He actually brings up some interesting points, sorry, I can't speak tonight, on why sedition was a better call over treason or conspiracy through treason. He writes in a law article, in quotes here, treason prosecutions would have introduced significant legal complexity while doing very little to increase sentences. Seditious conspiracy charges, by contrast, are perfectly pitched to the gravity of the offenses, and given the substantial evidence laid out in the indictments, should be relatively straightforward to prove. I think tr- I, I think what he's getting at is that treason is more abstract, but sedition depends on what you're looking at. And in this case, I think what you see is that Donald Trump, the Proud Boys, other followers, vocally had said they wanted to find either through alternative slates of electors, through John Eastman's whack whack theories involving dual slates of electors through what the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were doing. They were trying to one way or another make sure that Mike Pence could not certify the election. They were less concerned about the outcome, but if Mike Pence could at least be stopped through either it, you know convincing him to stop or by stopping him physically, it would at least throw the whole system into some form of confusion, chaos, controversy. And I think the interesting thing here is that is that when, uh, what's his name, Charlton Larson says these type of charges are perfectly pitched to, to the gravity of the offenses and given the substantial evidence laid out in the indictments are relatively straightforward to prove. And the problem is for all of these guys like Tario and all the others is that there's a lot of just video evidence, online evidence, testimonials by the co-conspirators that are now flipping one by one. Now, an interesting background on sedition is that Charlton Larson notes that these charges are actually used pretty rare in the United States and actually have only been used four times in recent memory. But he says, like, he basically cites a Michigan case as well as an earlier case. And he, he argues that the problem is, is that sometimes the scope is too big and you're trying to find abstract arguments to make this case. But <laughs> literally the whole situation involving January 6th, the alternative slate of electors, then sending a mob to the Capitol to stop Mike Pence. It's actually pretty cut and dry because all of this was aimed at the peaceful transfer of power in the United States, which is the essential ritual of democracy, and it was aimed at stopping it. And because of this, you can then say this is what they were trying to do, and then you can kind of reverse this whole process to really find out what's happening here. And Larson also discusses how basically sedition charges must involve a conspiracy, but also also some form of a prior agreement to actually commit tangible particular offenses. He talks about how it doesn't encompass people who simply made impulsive decisions. And I think this is important to note with people like Enrique Tario, 
They weren't the ones, you know, that got caught up in the mob and were smashing glass and climbing into the Capitol. This is more about the people that actually had a prior agreement to commit particular offenses. And I think that's really key. And I guess I would assume this is why prosecutors focused on sedition charges for people like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, etc. It's not about the random people who showed up at the Capitol and caused chaos. As we learned during the January 6th hearings and through testimonies since Jack Smith's investigation, even the Georgia stuff, it seems like groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, Roger Stone, the Trump administration, they all planned this for weeks. They had plans to basically start some, some form of civil unrest to stop our democratic institutions from working. I always worry about what would have happened, for example, if the Capitol Police actually shot one of the protesters. We know that weapons had been brought in, and we know that, that there was some form of communication from the outsiders that wanted to light the match and start the chaos. I am just so glad that it didn't get worse, basically. But either way, it sounds to me like groups like the Oath Keepers wanted something to happen. The Proud Boys wanted to also be basically the shirts on the ground. And then you also had bad actors in the Trump administration that decided to collaborate with these external groups to stop our lawmakers from doing their job. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like sedition to me. Now, of course, I would also argue that treason, I think, would line up with some of these actions as well. Treason charges involve, you know, someone who's levying war against their own country, which I think is much harder to prove. The intention is much more difficult to find. Of course, if you were trying to do treason charges, it would be treason charges against the United States. I do think some of the Oath Keepers would qualify for this. Larson, back to his article, Charlton Larson writes here in quotes, that the, 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 sorry, the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794 and Fry's Rebellion of 1799 were clear examples of treason and levying war against one's nation. But he also notes that these definitions have changed and what it means to levy war may be difficult due to our more recent court decisions. Larson writes in quotes, Justice Robert Greer suggested that levying war against the United States requires an intent to actually overthrow the government entirely, not just to obstruct the operation of one particular law. That's why I think treason would be complicated because I would argue, actually, for the defense of, I guess, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, I don't know if they wanted to overthrow the entire government. They just wanted to basically obstruct the certification of votes so that Trump could remain president. And that is a different situation, I guess, whether you like it or not. And they just wanted to stop Pence. Larson jokes, though, in quotes, applied to January 6th, this sounds like a law school exam hypothetical from hell. That's what this is, guys. That's what this entire thing is, is a hypothetical law school essay topic from hell. And we all get to live it. That's what we are all so lucky to do. Now, getting back to the Enrique Tarrio stuff for a second. You know, they they said it on January 6th, fuck around and find out. And I guess they are finding out. And the significant part of this to me is that the Proud Boy leaders are receiving serious hard time sentences, not just slaps on the wrist. Of course, we're not getting to the upper echelon, the other people higher up like Roger Stone yet, potentially Donald Trump, other sycophants. I think Jeffrey Clark could also be a questionable actor in all of this, the guy that Trump wanted to put in. But Judge Timothy Kelly, who made this ruling, he basically argued that the Proud Boys' actions did represent terrorism, 
He didn't give them as much time as the guidelines stipulated, but still 22 years, 18, 17, it's pretty insane. It's pretty insane. And interestingly enough, the guy who said, fuck around and find out, Joseph Biggs, he's now saying, oh my God, he's really aghast now. He's like, I I didn't think we weren't trying to hurt anybody. My ass. You guys are trying to hurt people and trying to obstruct our system, eroding trust in everything. And, you know, a lot of people think this is a long time. It's it is actually unfathomable, right? Like, what, 22 years? I haven't even been alive for twice that. Like, I'm 28. That's almost most of my life. But then again, when you make violent, dangerous decisions, you do need to be held accountable. The people that are saying this is too long, oh my God, like, these these sentences are extreme, etc., I, I just can't sympathize with that argument because these guys did bad things. These are not good actors, and these were actors that were involved in trying to obstruct the counting and certification of votes, the thing that makes our system work. And so I guess you have to think about these things before you do insane, seditious acts, conspiratorial acts. I'm sorry, I don't feel sympathy for it. I really don't. And I think it does send a message because Tario was not there on January 6th, but he's going to spend 22 years potentially in prison. And that's why sedition is interesting. And I think we should have used sedition more from the beginning, not looking at the random Joes out there that got brainwashed on social media and ended up storming the Capitol. Those people I have more sympathy for. To me, it's actually sad and heartbreaking that they ended up doing that because they were so convinced that Donald Trump won. The people that I disdain are the ones that convinced the average Joes to go to the Capitol and do it. I would entertain the idea of pardoning some of the people that just ended up there, got caught up in the mob, and ended up breaking shit. I would entertain the idea of giving them lenient sentences. But the Enrique Tarios, those types that had a bigger plan, plotted this for weeks, and then thought they could get away scot-free... Yeah, they should be held accountable. I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. And it's nice to see that it's not just the guy who drove in from Michigan who was told that Biden won the or Trump won the election, Biden stole it, and he had to fight. Those people, I think, deserve more sympathy than these assholes like Enrique Tarrio. That's that's how I feel. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I just I just don't have sympathy for this. And I think the only way you stop another January 6th. You stop more violence towards law enforcement, towards our electoral system, more obstruction of our system, is to tell the people you can't just create these seditious plots. So, in my opinion, good news, good news. Stuart Rhodes as well, not a great guy. I like to see accountability, because if you look at coups and coup attempts and insurrections throughout history... They usually succeed the second time when there's no accountability after the first time. I think the Biden administration has been too slow to react to this. Merrick Garland has not done enough. Recently, he's done enough, but he should have been jumping at this much quicker. I'm glad to see he's doing it now. I don't think it's completely too late, but we are polarized. People are going to call these guys political prisoners. I can already just envision Marjorie Taylor Greene saying... Oh, Enrique Tarrio's in the whatever places, gulag, all this bullshit. Totally, in my opinion, accountability served well. Anyways, a shorter episode. You guys can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the gist. Have a great rest of your night, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Take care.